morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us, whether you're at the Ajax site or Bowmanville or Port Perry, or some of you, of course, later this week will be watching online because you were setting up at Pickering for the first time today. So we want to say hello to you also. I have the great privilege, and I mean that word sincerely, the privilege of traveling the world. Uh, as most of you know, I was born locally in the Schwa, but I actually grew up in South America. But I've traveled over 40 countries. I've been to some of the most amazing cities on earth, Barcelona, London, uh, New York, <laughs> Chicago, Istanbul, Jerusalem. I've been in some of the most wealthy places on the globe. I've also lived in some of the most broken and actually some of the most unjust areas on the globe also. The more you travel, and I don't just mean watching things online, I mean the, the more you actually travel, the more you realize what you have when you come back to Canada. And uh, one of the most valuable things I have in my life is my Canadian passport. Because that passport says that this is my home. And when I come home, even after a long flight, even though I know probably the border security guard is not going to smile at me, I do know one thing, that when I show them my passport, they will say, welcome home, Mr. Thompson, if they're talking that day. They'll say that. <laughs> now, the reason why I want to break that up, that's a, such a simple thing, whether you have a Nexus card or a passport or whatever. We, we use these all the time, but that simple illustration is so helpful. What allows me to get off a plane and walk into this country is not just me. I don't just appear and say, behold, I am John Thompson from Ajax. They go, prove who you are. And I give them this thing called a passport, and they go, you are now most welcome. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because this whole series, whether you're a skeptic or a seeker or a long-term Christian or you're brand new to the faith, we are trying to understand through this letter called Galatians, what is the true gospel and what is a false gospel? What is genuine Christianity and what is not genuine Christianity? And how do you cross the line? How do you, when you come up to the line of eternal life, when does God say you may come in? And the answer is this, Jesus is your passport. And that's the only person in your life that gets you through. He's the only thing in your hand that allows you to go from death to life, allows you to come into eternal life, allows you into the kingdom of God. And not just eternal life in the future, allows you to have purpose and encounter with the living God now. Now this is week four in this fall series as we're in the book of Galatians. And again, we've been finding out that Paul is writing only 16 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing to a group of multicultural churches in what we would call Turkey today, and they are being tempted in this moment to give into a false version of Christianity, a false gospel, and reject and repudiate the true one. And we found out over the last three weeks that these false teachers who were sincere but sincerely wrong were called Judaizers. And one summarized their position this way. Not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. That's the, that's the sentiment. And the battle lies were, were drawn. As one summarized, Paul had been teaching them, Jesus plus nothing is everything. In other words, all you need to cross the border is Jesus, nothing else. These other people are saying, well, actually, no, it's not just Jesus. You need to do all these other things. So Paul's teaching Jesus' work alone, grace alone, faith alone, trust in, in him alone. False teachers are saying, well, it's Jesus plus Judaism, circumcision, uh, Jesus plus worshiping on Saturdays, etc., etc. So the question we were left with last week is this. Is Christianity just a Jewish thing, a reform movement within Judaism? 
or is this going to become a global thing? And Paul had confronted these false teachers, we found out, in Jerusalem. He's confronting them now in this letter, but as he's writing this letter, this autobiography moment, he also refers to another past tense of confrontation where things got even more serious and more dire. Now, the next clash happened in a city called Antioch. This was the first place where non-Jews had accepted Jesus, where Barnabas had been, like we saw last week. And Peter, by this time in the story, and the other church leaders had met with Paul and they said, look, your good news is our good news, our good news is your good news. We're all on the same page, but we're assigned to different people. But then something terrible happens. Suddenly Peter and even Barnabas start going, well, maybe we were wrong. And maybe these false teachers were right. And Paul, maybe we should breathe a little. Maybe you should reconsider. And you know, we are all are Jews, and maybe we need to guard our... And so things went sideways. Galatians 2.11. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Can you imagine this church meeting? Paul stands up, takes off his glasses, I do, and points. And said, Peter, you are not just wrong... Before the living God of heaven and earth, you are condemned at this moment. You are compromising on the good news of Jesus. Okay, let's remind ourselves who Peter is. Peter, who was called personally by Jesus. Peter, who became the leader of the 12 disciples. Peter was the first one to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Peter's the one who tried walking on the water. Peter's one of the three that was at the transfiguration where he saw Jesus in his glorified state. Peter's the one who cut off a man's ear trying to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is like, bro, we don't do that in our movement. Put it away. Then hours later, he rejects and cusses and disowns Jesus. But after Jesus' physical resurrection, Jesus makes a point to sit with Peter, restores Peter, makes him the primary leader of the church. Peter preached the very first Christian sermon in history. Peter was the first one to formally include non-Jews in the church. He's sitting in jail. Another church is praying. He's set free by an angel. And that's how he ends up in Antioch. But despite all of this incredible history... Peter begins to compromise and waver. Now, to understand why Paul is so upset, he's not just having a bad day. He is concerned and grieved, and and he is upset because Peter is threatening the very essence of our faith. Now, to understand this, we've got to go back to a historic moment. Before Paul, before Barnabas, with Peter. The very first time that non-Jews were included in the church happens in Acts chapter 10. There's a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a top Roman military official living in Caesarea. Now, let's remind ourselves. The Romans were occupying the Jewish homeland. The Romans were oppressors to the Jews. The Romans were taking away ethnic and religious rights, and the Romans were incredibly cruel. And this man is one of the top military officials in that order that's oppressing another group of people. And yet this man, who's an enemy of the Jews, is praying one day, an angel shows up in his house and says, I want you to send some of your servants to go find this man named Peter. He's going to tell you how to encounter the living God. Now, like I said, Cornelius lived in Caesarea, this gorgeous, beautiful Mediterranean seaside port. It was rebuilt by Herod the Great, but it was named after Caesar Augustus. It became the center of the Roman administration. So it's the hub, it's the administration center for all the oppression in the whole region. And not only that, it had been decided it would be a showpiece 
for Roman culture. It had a temple dedicated to Caesar. So let me bring this home. Jews hated Caesarea so much because there was more non-Jews living there than Jews. It was the place where all the oppression comes from. There was military personnel everywhere and false idols and demons are worshipped there. They hated it so much that 2,000 years ago, most Orthodox Jews said Caesarea isn't even part of God's promised land anymore. It's out. And in the middle of all of that, in a place where no Jew would want to go, in a place where no Jew would expect God to show up, God sends an angel to an enemy of the Jewish people and says, go find this person. Now, in the middle of that, right when the angel is showing up, God gives Peter a vision. And it reads like this in Acts 10, 11. Peter saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet began to be let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Not in your life. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. In other words, I'm a Jew. I eat kosher. I'm not eating that pig. That's what that means. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened not once, twice, three times. And immediately the sheep was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate and they said, you got to come with us. So Peter does something that breaks every Jewish Orthodox rule of faith and social understanding. He goes not just to a place he hates. He doesn't just go to the house of a pagan or a non-Jew. He goes to the house of his enemy. Remember, many think that Peter was a former insurgent with the zealots, a semi-religious terrorist. So Peter enters the house, and Cornelius meets him. And Cornelius, the great man of military might, falls at his feet in reverence. But Peter makes him get up, stand up. I'm only a man. And taking, uh, talking to him and ta- ta- talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you're very aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a non-Jew or even to visit him. But God has shown me I should not call any man impure or unclean. It is against our Jewish law to meet or visit with you. Okay, what does that mean? It is against Jewish custom and faith to actually be in the house of a non-Jew or someone from another faith. Why? Because something called clean laws. In the Old Testament, God gave the series of cleanliness laws. You had to be ceremonially cleansed, not just morally, but ritualistically cleansed to worship God. So you could not worship God if you touched or ate unclean food. You could not worship God if you touched a dead body. If your food that you were eating had been sacrificed to idols, then you could not walk in worship God. If an animal had been sacrificed or, sorry, slaughtered wrong and you wanted to approach God, you couldn't. If you didn't tithe on the food that you were actually eating that day, you couldn't approach God. Now, why would God give all these ceremonial laws? Because what he was trying to tell the Jewish people is this. You cannot walk into a holy presence, God, unclean. You need to be clean. It was to point them to something greater. But shockingly, in this moment, Peter breaks all the traditions and the laws and goes and goes in their house and sits with them and touches them and preaches to them anyway. He tells them about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then this crazy thing happens. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who were hearing the message and the, and the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be poured out even on non-Jews for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. 
So Peter's like, oh my goodness, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is going to be a global thing. God is going to reconcile everyone, including my most hated enemy is now my brother or my sister. Can you imagine? Eight years later, after this amazing event, after Peter's met with Paul twice, after all the leaders have met with Paul, they're all saying, yes, it's God's will that Jews and non-Jews should be together. Yes, God's doing this new thing. The cleanliness laws were just to prepare us for the work of Jesus because Jesus makes you clean, no one else. Barnabas shows up last week. Titus shows up. And then... Peter begins to backpedal. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with non-Jews. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from non-Jews because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. You've got to do the Jewish thing to be saved. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas is now led astray. What? I mean, Peter and Barnabas are giving in to the very thing they know is wrong, and they were at God's forefront of doing amazing things even before Saul was doing them. See, Paul is not saying, hey, listen, we'll just agree to disagree. You know, you get a latte and I get a flat white. It's all good. This is not, oh, we're just a little off. You know, you look tur turquoise and I like green. No, no, no. He's saying, Peter, your theology at its core is threatening eternal life. As one wrote, essentially the dispute was about cleanliness. Jews did not eat with non-Jews because they were unclean and you had to be clean to worship God. But Paul and Peter and Barnabas and Titus and everyone else at this moment has suddenly realized something already. You don't get clean by obeying the law. You get clean by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the passport. Jesus makes you clean. Well, he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you're forcing non-Jews now to follow in Jewish customs? And by the way, if you're misreading this as sort of some like anti-Semitic rant by Paul, Paul's Jewish. He's the most Jewish guy you can get. So Peter's been eating with non-Jews for years. He's been eating in non-kosher environments for years. He's hung out with non-Jews. He's had physical contact with non-Jews. Why? They sat in church together. Remember what it used to, communion used to be around a table. You'd eat together and you'd share food together. And so now everything that's been won is being lost. Peter and Barnabas are like afraid. Oh, did you just catch that? Peter and Barnabas start changing their theology because they're afraid of what people might say. Oh, this is hypocrisy. This is, well, can you imagine Peter saying this? I know we've been friends for years. And we both love Jesus, but I can't hang out with you anymore. I can't touch your kids. I can't hug them. I actually can't go to connect group with you anymore. I can't celebrate big with you anymore. I definitely can't take communion with you anymore because the food on your table is wrong. So I know you're actually a Christian, but you're unclean and, and we're clean. So we're going to have the Jewish ch church over here where Jesus is Messiah. And the non-Jewish church is going to be over there. Jesus is the son of God. And I suppose maybe we'll work out in heaven. Maybe I'm not sure. Can you imagine happen this happening in our church right now? I'm sorry, I just... I can't serve with you anymore. I can't go to connect group with you anymore. I, I can't literally sit in the same sanctuary with you anymore or auditorium. I, I, I can't literally touch communion with you because you know you're unclean and I'm more clean. So here's how Paul responds. He says, you know, verse 15, you know, we who are Jews by birth, we're not those sinful non-Jews. Now there's so much power and history behind this little phrase. He's like, look, we're blessed. Hashtag blessed for real as Jews. 
I mean, we have real value. Listen, we are God's elect. That means that of all the nations of the earth, God, because he's God, decided that we would be his people. We're supposed to show the world what? Who God is. And not only that, we've got the Bible. We've got the Torah. We've got the Old Testament. We've got the Ten Commandments. We know the difference between idols and the living God. We're Jews, and we're not you sinful non-Jews. By the, the, by the way, that sinful non-Jews phrase, sinful Gentile, is a normal phrase in Jewish culture because they didn't have God's law, sinful they didn't obey God's law, sinful. They didn't know who God was, so they were sinners. It was a positional phrase about every non-Jew on earth. It was a religious statement, and for many Jews, it was a prideful moment. Jews, much of the time, 2,000 years ago, would call non-Jews dogs. And if you read Orthodox prayers by men 2,000 years ago, one of the first things they'd say every morning is, oh God, thank you for not making me a Gentile sinner. But here's the point. Peter and Paul have already realized that that's not true. Here's what Paul would write years later to a group of Christians meeting in the heartbeat of the enemy, Rome. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Oh, not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews are all alike under sin. Oh, can you just take a look at it? Does it say sin or sins? Sin. See, we are all under the dynamic of sin. We're all under the power of sin. We're all under the control of sin. We're not born good. Don't, don't let your culture tell you anything else. We are born sinful and prideful. You don't need to teach children sin. They know it. Amen, anyone? They know it. We are born selfish and prideful and bent towards ourselves and bent away from God. And here's the point. We are all morally corrupt at our roots. Jews oh, and non-Jews. I quoted this years ago, let me do it again. When speaking to a 35-year veteran funeral director, it gives us a hard but insightful picture to every one of us. He says, I've had every age and race and nationality and size and religion represented on my coroner's table. And when you cut a human being open and look inside, they all look the same. And let me assure you, it is never pretty. One famed Russian poet said, I don't know what the heart of a, ban a bad man looks like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it's terrible. All of us have sinned. The kind, the unkind, the religious, the unreligious, the wicked, baby, children, teen, young adult, adult, those born, those living, those dying. And Paul says in verse 16, we know, we already know this, that a person is not justified, made right with God by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We're no different than those we look down upon our whole lives. We've now come to understand, we've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit that to be made right with the only true living God, to be justified, to be made clean, to get the passport to go into eternal life is through Jesus Christ. Not because we're Jews, not because we have marks on our body, not because we possess the law, or not because we obey the law. The law, ceremonial and moral, and all the oral law will never make you holy. Why? Here's the point. God is fully love all the time. And God is fully holy all the time. And to walk into God's presence, you have to be perfectly loved and perfectly moral all the time. It is impossible even for the most religious among us. So we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, so we may be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. The most religious person like Paul because we found out his story. And the semi-religious, somewhat violent person like Peter. And the idol-worshipping world of the non-Jews that, that make up our broken, diverse human story. 
The best of us and the worst of us. The most secular, the most religious, the most spectacular, the good, the bad, the evil, the non-Jewish and the Jewish are all in need of rescue. See, this is the beautiful truth of Christianity and the most offensive claim in Christianity. This is saying that the most devout Muslim at this moment and the most devout Roman Catholic and the most devout Orthodox Jew is in the same boat with God as Richard Dawkins, the most militant atheist on earth. We're all in this boat. We all need rescue. And God did not set up stairs like this. God did this and sent his son. And Paul says, we have faith, informed trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the agent of salvation. Jesus is the passport. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the swipe card. Jesus is the password. No one else can help you through the border except him. And we get justified. We are called acquitted. God doesn't pass over our sin or ignore our sin. He places the sin on Jesus and Jesus takes the wrath of God, the Father and takes the penalty of sin and deals with death and then comes after he has conquered all of that and says, if you embrace me, I have already taken the bullet. I will declare you not guilty. The law does not have the power to say not guilty. Now, before his critics can speak, Paul knows where this is going. So all the false teachers are sitting in the corner like this, going, oh, fine. All you need to do is have faith in Jesus. Oh, he's the passport and the keyword, no problem. Then I just need to believe in Jesus and say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I don't have to live a holy life because, you know, Jesus takes the bullet. I got fire insurance now. I'm going to heaven, so I'm going to live like hell. I mean, I didn't have to earn it, and Jesus is love, and he lets me get away with everything because he's so super loving. And Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. You think that when you embrace Jesus... Jesus is going to suddenly become the pastor of sin? You think that when you embrace Jesus and you move from the law to this, you just get, no, no, there's not moving from the law to moving to licentiousness. No, no, this is about life. He says in verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Meaning Jesus doesn't move you from sin, uh, sorry, from the law to sin, it moves you to love and holiness. Think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus taught. Oh, everyone loves Jesus until they read him, actually. Jesus never said, oh, that sin's okay. It's okay, we've changed our mind. He goes, sin. No, repent. No, adultery's wrong still. No, you can't do that. No, no, you're a hypocrite. Like, Jesus all the time, right? No, no, no. But here's the beautiful thing. He says no, and then he says, but I can deal with that. Come home. So he's not saying, well, you become a Christian, you get fire insurance, you're going to heaven, don't worry about hell. You get to live like hell because you're going to heaven. He said, no, no, understand, when you truly encounter Jesus, you get a spirit. When you get a spirit, you'll begin to look like Jesus. When you look like Jesus, you'll end up living a more holy life. Why? Because you look like Christ. Tim Keller put it this way, religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. Remember what we discovered in our Ten Commandments series? The Ten Commandments, when you look at them, show you your need for a Savior. They show us how we're all in trouble and we need rescue. But after you've gone to the rescue and embraced Jesus alone, faith alone, in his work alone, then we obey the Ten Commandments, not to make sure that Dad likes us upstairs and not to get in. We do it because we love him. The moral law just isn't thrown out and we get to do anything we want and we determine truth. No, no, we obey the law because we've experienced the grace of Jesus, but we're not saved by obeying it. 
He says, if I rebuild, verse 18, whatever I have destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Through the law, I died to the law so I might live for God. He says, look, I'm never trusting in myself or what I do ever again or in any system. Jesus is the passport. When Jesus said on the cross that it's finished, he meant it's finished. It's not what you do. It's who you know that makes everything different. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ, no, he lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, he's not saying I don't exist anymore. It's just the Jesus. Inside. No, 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 Paul exists. His point is my life is now about Jesus. My obsession is about Jesus. I live for the Son of God. And how do I know I'm actually loved by God? Because Jesus lived for me, died for me, and he rose from the dead for me. And he took my bullet and he's made me clean. And by the way, did you catch it? It was sitting around my alpha table a few weeks ago. A real sincere guy beside me said, you know, honestly, I just don't get it. I mean, like, Jesus died 2,000 years ago and I'm sitting here. How does his death then help me now? What an awesome question. Now, you got to remember, Paul never met Jesus while he was on earth. He only met him in a vision after he'd been resurrected from the dead. But you notice the language where Paul says, Jesus died for the world. Jesus died, no, he died for what? Me. See, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus, outside of time and space, knows all things. So when Jesus died on the cross and dealt with sin and dealt with the demonic and dealt with death, you've got to hear this. I know it sounds Sunday schoolish. I know it sounds like a bumper sticker, but it's true. Jesus thought of you personally when he died on the cross. 2,000 years ago, knowing all who would exist, Jesus thought of you and said, I am dying in that person's place so they might be my son and my daughter and my brother and sister because God has loved them and I love them and the Spirit loves them. I am doing this so they can have eternal life. Is anyone thankful today for that, right? Personal. Personal. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Whoa. If you add anything to Jesus, you're saying Jesus' death was inefficient and ineffective. If you think, or I think, or we think, that we need to add something to Jesus, that we're declaring he didn't do enough. So if you think, oh yeah, Jesus is fine, but I've got I've to trust in science too for eternal life. Not efficient, not effective. Or technology, or, 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 fill in the blank. When you add anything to, listen, Jesus doesn't need your help. He's a great savior by himself. Just trust him. Now, what do we learn? Because the arc of this series in this book is going somewhere. So this is sort of one of these pivotal moments. Number one, again, for the fourth week, we have heard that self-effort has nothing to do with salvation. Thank God we do not have the burden of proving ourselves to a perfect standard. I love how Eugene Peterson translated Ephesians 2.8. Saving is God's idea. It's all his work. All we do is trust in him and let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't even play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging. We'd done the whole thing. No, we, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Love that. But you know what's interesting about Christianity, what's so offensive and beautiful about it? The presupposition of Christianity is all human beings are invaluable, eternally made, and also in the image of God, but have to still admit they're sinners and need rescue. See, if you can't admit that you're a res you need rescue, 
you'll never embrace Jesus. You can't. I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew 9. I didn't come for righteous people, but for sinners. You have to admit, I'm not just sort of bad. No, you need to admit, I'm done without you. Hans Kung, the very controversial Catholic theologian, described sinners like this. Sinners stand there with hands entirely empty. That's why the old Anglican phrase, Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, is so right and beautiful. The gospel is you do not have the burden to prove yourself to God. He has dealt with it by himself, through himself, through his son. But here's the greater question for us in this moment. When are you allowed to go confront a Christian like this? When is the Paul-Peter moment right? And when is it wrong? See, Christians are going crazy, like the rest of the world, on the internet these days. Everything is a million percent all the time, and there's no gray. Everything's black and white. Twitter, I hate that pastor. His tie is awful. He's going to hell. Oh, off it goes. Oh, I agree, I agree, I agree. Right? Social media, Twitter, Instagram, it goes podcast on and on and on. And now we live in cancel culture. We're not even interested to finding out the facts. We've decided you're dangerous to society. You're gone. So here's the question for us who are part of the kingdom of God. Where's the red line and where is it not? Where are you allowed to go and say, actually, you're in danger of really doing something wrong and actually we agree to disagree? See, Christians, real followers of Jesus, have disagreed on a lot of things as they studied the scriptures and read church history. For 2,000 years, there has been debate on women in ministry, how the spiritual gifts function, how a church should be run. Is it only elders? Is it priests and bishops, cardinals and, and deacons, or, or on and on? Uh, predestination, does God choose you because he knows what you're going to do, or is it God actively choosing you because we're spiritually dead? Creation, a literal seven days, or, or gap? On and on and on. Now, every church has to have decision on each one of those secondary issues, and the Bible says on Judgment Day, we'll be held responsible by God for the decision. So you think your criticism is big? Don't worry about it. Eternal, big. You can all pray for me right now. Okay. So let's be clear about this, though. There are multiple things that we disagree with with our brothers and sisters down the street where we think they are wrong, and we think we're right, and they think the same thing about us. And on Judgment Day, we'll find out. But that is not at the level of you are condemned. There are only three times where you can go to a Christian or Christian leader at this level with this intensity, and it's this, when they change the gospel, when they violate the core tenets of the Christian faith that all agree to, or you start saying sin is not sin. Those are the three times, and by the way, notice, Paul does it personally to Peter, not through Twitter, Instagram, or through a blog. Now watch this. When you change the nature of the gospel, then you are called to go kindly to a brother and sister and say, whoa, careful. False teachers always say you must add something to the work of Jesus to be saved. You need to accept Jesus and become Jewish. You need to accept Jesus and you must be baptized. You, you, you have to accept Jesus and, and not dance on Friday nights and not chew gum and, and, and don't wear slacks. Fill in the blank. It is by grace you get saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so no one gets to boast. When you add anything to the salvation message, it's trouble. What you live like after is different, but when you change the gospel, it's trouble. Here's the second thing. You have the right and you have the, actually the necessity to go to a Christian if they change the core truths of our faith. Now the best summary of the non-negotiables 
of the Christian faith are found in what we call the Apostles' Creed. Because these summarize all the things that are agreed upon throughout the centuries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, descended to the dead, and for real on the third day, physically rose from again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, meaning global or unified church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. If you start hearing pastors or leaders or people going, well, there's many gods, you go, whoa, 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 there's only one that has never been created. Uh, when, when, when you say, oh, I believe in Jesus, what do you mean by that? No, no, the only begotten Son of God, that, that means that the Jesus of history is the same as the Jesus of faith. When you say Jesus is God's Son, you're saying that he shares DNA with the Father, which means he's one with the Father, which means he is God. There is only one being that has the DNA of God. That's God. When you start hearing Christian pastors saying, oh, you know, there's lots of ways to heaven and all paths. No, no, no. What did the Son of God say himself? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. There's no but or asterisk. Or pe- it's just period, period. That's truth. Virgin birth. You have to believe in the virgin birth or Jesus was born sinful. You have to believe in physical resurrection or a whole faith is garbage. You have to believe that Jesus is going to judge all humans because he's at the right hand of the Father. You have to believe in eternal life because that's the whole point. This is the baseline. This is the foundation. This is the core of our faith. Remember, I talked about this in the Jude series. If I go to McDonald's today and say I'd like a Whopper, they're going to be like, what? This is Big Mac land. Get out of here. Right? If I go over to Burger King, I'm not sure why I would, but if I did, <laughs> ooh, and said, hey, listen, I want a Big Mac, they're like, no, this is Whopperland, out. Why? Because we don't do that here because that's not this, this is that. Well, Christianity is not choose your own adventure, I feel like it's this today. No, it's this. This is what the Big Mac is or the Whopper is. You don't get to change your order because what you want or where you come from. This is the revealed truth of God. The Apostles' Creed is the summary of this. And when Christian leaders say, well, there are many gods or Jesus isn't the only way or virgin birth or miracles, oh, we don't really, stop and run. They are false teachers. When you, they're, they're false teachers. So, and remember this, I've said this before. Most wolves don't know they are wolves. Most wolves are sincere people who are just wrong. So when you change the gospel, when you change the tenet of our faith that all Christians in every church on earth at this moment, from big cathedrals to small house churches where they use bells and smells to speaking in tongues and everything, when you change that, you're no longer here. Here's the last thing. When people and leaders start saying sin is not sin. See, the Bible is quite clear about sin. What God started in creation before sin entered the world is God's will. And when we break those things, it's sin. And sin, by the way, is not just breaking God's laws, it's attacking his nature because the law reflects God himself. The Bible is clear about sin, and when you hear pastors or churches saying, well, you know, we know better, or we live in 2019, or we have iPhones, and no, stop. That's false teaching. Remember, Jesus never promotes sin. Another person reflected it this way. Utility has replaced duty, And self-expression has now unseated authority. Being good has now become feeling good. 
It was a famous California lawyer that was quoting Mark Twain when he said, I love that thing Mark Twain said about something moral is something you feel good after. And the implication is that if you feel bad, then it's wrong. And then the implication is, well, you have to try everything to see if you feel it's good or bad, and suddenly you're the arbiter of truth. No. God is God. He's outside of time and space, and he is the potter and we're the clay. God has the final say in what is truth and what is untruth. God has the final say what is right and wrong. And by the way, God never denies us anything that is not good for us. God actually puts laws in front of us so we do not actually hurt ourselves. His will is perfect. And so you say, well, John, I don't live, I don't know, I live in a post-truth culture and everyone's opinion and, you know, the dark web is full of billion different perspectives and conspiracy theory. Okay, here it is, ready? Read the Ten Commandments, they're sin. You want to know what sin is, honestly? Read the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 9.8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, don't be deceived. Don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the hype. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the flesh, sin, are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet most pastors and most churches will not actually preach out of those three texts, nor will they say they are right. Now hold on. Does that mean I can't struggle with this? Oh, a billion percent. We're all reading that list going, I'm screwed. Exactly. So here's the point. When we read this, we go, oh my goodness, I am a sinner, and I do have inclinations, and I have desires, and they go in a thousand directions, and that's when we go, oh, how I need who? Jesus. This isn't about struggle. This is not about inclination. This is when leaders start saying, that's not a sin anymore, and God doesn't care. He does care. You cannot start saying the things we've been rescued from we don't need rescuing from anymore. We need rescue because we're sinful. How we pastorally work this out, how I work this out in my own life or with my friends or my wife or my children, how I'm not angry, how I'm sexually pure, all that stuff, the pastoral way we work out this is a different sermon. All I'm saying is when you hear people saying that is not a sin and God is okay with it, false teaching. So there's this critical moment where we need to understand that Paul's confrontation of Peter was not just a personality thing or a battle over position. It was over the nature of the gospel. Why was Paul so impassioned? Because he was so concerned that we would have eternal life. He was so concerned that every nation and every, no one gets to be called unclean. Everyone gets to be called clean through Jesus if they say yes to him. So I'm going to ask you, uh, wherever you might be today, at whatever site you might be, would you stand? We're just going to pray over three simple things because what I've just preached is going to take some time to think through. Lots of time probably at Connect Group to talk about. But let's just pray a few things. Number one, we do join with a global church all around the world at this moment, from China uh, across to India, all the way down to South Africa, across to Peru, right, to the States, to Germany, everywhere around the world at this moment, Indonesia, and we do confess there's only one God, found through Jesus, revealed by the Spirit.
And thank you. We want to thank you. We want to join the global church, and we also want to join the church in Durham, and we want to actually join all those already in heaven. We want to say, thank you, Father, for sending Jesus, your son. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, some of us, as I've been preaching, realize or are realizing that we are Peter. We're like, oh my goodness, I have said sin is not sin, or I have started believing things that are not Christian, or I have added things to the gospel, or, I, or I've said you can live like hell even though I'm going to heaven. Lord, send your Holy Spirit, and any person who has committed that sin, convict them, and then restore them. And lastly, our prayer uh, right across Sanctus Church is that more and more people would encounter the power of Jesus, his freeing work, and so we continually ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be released in Durham, in the GTA, and around the world so there can be a genuine moment of ongoing salvation, renewal, revival, and awakening. So Lord, would you continue to make this church pure and clean and right and holy, and at the same time help us when we do confront to be kind, not jerks, not rude, but direct. Lord, lead us and guide us in holiness, in love, and truth. We ask this in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen.